So what you would do is actually crack a whole egg, give it a little shake, and then back in the colonial age, they would actually heat up like a big bulbous rod. They would insert that rod into the drink and heat it up. Oh, uh, my God. And I always found that kind of odd. I've... I, I'm heated up in a similar manner. Yeah. <laughs> History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly, I want to know. Welcome to Hilf. History, I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And if you're a regular listener, you've probably heard me warn you that my obsession with history can run away with me. And I have been known to corner people at parties and just talk their ear off about George Washington. So imagine the serendipitous joy of meeting a bartender who loves history as much as I do. Right? His name is Rashid Green, a.k.a. the Barless Tender. Now, Rashid and his wife, Casey, started the social channel The Barless Tender during COVID for all of us booze hounds who found ourselves suddenly bar less but no less thirsty. And not only do they demonstrate how to make bitchin' cocktails, but he serves up each one with an accompanying dose of history. I know! (laughs) So I invited Rashid over, and in he came with a little cooler filled with fragrant and intoxicating delights from America's colonial past. And in exchange, I serve up some delightful history from the same time period. I mean, it's history class the way you always wanted it. (laughs) So drink along with us if you can. I've posted the recipe and directions for each cocktail on our Instagram, at Podcast, and they've also got them at the.barlesstender. Today, whiskey and the Whiskey Rebellion, (laughs) a combination designed to render you both shaken and stirred. (laughs) Let's get started. Now, normally when a new friend comes to your house carrying a cooler, you have to like, is this guy going to take a kidney? Like what, you know, why? But your cooler is full of wonderful gifts for us today. We have some great, well, actually, I can't say it's a great wine. It's a table wine. Uh, But the cocktail that we're going to make with it is kind of a precursor to wine coolers. I love wine coolers. Yeah. It's it's one of those things that growing up, I think I had such a bad misconception about wine coolers. Uh, But then I got to like 16 and I was like, oh... Yeah. These, are, these are actually pretty good. Yeah. I find a lot of people at 16 wake up to wine coolers. My journey with alcohol was like, ugh. The first drink is like, ugh. It burns and mm-hmm. or it tastes bad. It makes my whole body pucker up. And you look at these adults, you're like, they fucking love it. I don't think this is for me. But then it's either a wine cooler, I find, or a schnapps. Yes. If you ask a lot of folks, what was your schnapps? The one you overdid and threw up. And it's a lot of root peppermint? beer. Schna- peppermint oh. schnapps. Good. Root beer for me. Mm. I, uh, I, I've recently been del- delving into this book called Drink. The very first chapter talks about the effects of alcohol on your body and how we are all programmed to think it's toxic and poison, which it is, uh, and yet we find these ways to make it palatable yeah. and, and actually start consuming it. So, for example, if you give like a, a three-year-old a little sip of wine, the face is just... yeah. And that's because that's your body's natural reaction. But your brain starts picking up on all of the receptors because you basically start making these neurotransmitters that are like, ooh, I'm I starting to that. relax. And so the second time you sip it, you're like, oh, I can kind of, I can forgive this terrible flavor yeah. because my brain's already feeling good. Yeah. And it's just kind of interesting how like uh, the brain just kind of subconsciously takes hold and it's like, now you're like, oh, well, I can drink tequila straight. Straight. You know? It is good for me. 
Exactly. My body wants this. This is what I need. <laughs> and this is so your arena. So Rashid and his wife, Casey. Yes. Um, you're, are you both bartenders or just you? Uh, Casey is amazing. She yeah. oh. has been a bartender. She's been a sommelier. Um, and now she's just an overall amazing creative person that, you know, sometimes she helps with cocktails. Sometimes it's just graphic design or figuring out how to edit things. I, I'm in awe of her at all all moments of my life. Well, she is so cool. I mean, we've only sent a few emails, and I can tell, like, Casey and I <laughs> have, like, a similar jam. She seems so great. And what you found yourself, so many of us did, during the long haul, the lockdown, the worst part of COVID, is no bars. Yes. And so simultaneously, as bartenders and lovers and connoisseurs of all alcohol, you were in the same bind a yeah. lot of us found ourselves in, right? Yeah. We started off making cocktails for our neighbors, really, essentially, because... We were all kind of hanging out. Uh, we formed our own little pod. We had uh, in our neighborhood uh, two other families that had children that were around the age of our oldest son. Uh, and how old are your kids? Uh, my oldest just turned three on St. Patty's Day. Oh. Uh, and our youngest is six and a half months. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. They are fantastic. Whole mess to deal with. But <laughs> I, like, I always wonder how people have more than two because I'm like, once you get past man coverage and you're trying to like play zone where you're like, okay, I see you over there, but I can't come get you because this little one needs my attention more and he's going to roll off the couch if I leave. Yeah. yeah I just... I don't know how you do it. Boggles I, my I'm mind. I'm the youngest of three. Oh, man. So I do kind of know because I fell off a lot of couches. <laughs> <laughs> or you watch your parents be like, you're going to fall. I can only hold one of you and I'm watching you fall off the couch. <laughs> you know, so like I witnessed it like firsthand. But yeah, now as a mom, I just got the one. She's three and a half. And it's the same. I'm like, I'm in the bedroom and the husband's out here. And you hear her and you think, well, she's closer to him. Yeah. So that's yep. his problem. <laughs> Even if she's screaming and crying and yelling for me, I'm like, you're you're way closer yeah. to that problem. But yeah, you got a baby and oh man. Yeah, the baby's teething right now, so he's been waking Oof. up in the middle of the night. And just it, it's been it's been a little rough and touch and go for the last uh, yeah. So the, so week and the half. drinks become both uh, friend and employment. I exactly. Suspect, exactly. Like it yeah. is fantastic for bed, uh, especially on my end because it helps me sleep a little bit easier through the night. Uh-huh. Uh huh. While my wife, unfortunately, is still breastfeeding and waking up at you know four times a night to to quell our, our, our wonderful little Zion. In addition to having kids, you live in my neighborhood, you like to drink, you got a dope wife, and you like history, Rashid. Yes. I mean, I, I was already on board. And then I'm watching your Instagram, and not only are you making these beautiful cocktails, and you demonstrate with, with the quantities, a demonstration of yeah. the way to do it so that people at home can make this fairly easily, but you're giving us a dose of history, girl, my favorite. And you talk about, I think my favorite one that I saw recently was right around President's Day. You made, I think it was called a flip Yes. Uh, and it was in honor of the six enslaved men who worked in George Washington's whiskey distillery. Exactly. And you should see my toes curled up. In my, I was like, ooh, this is a girl in my toes with yes. this drink and this history. So I'm so, so glad that you are here. I'm excited that that got you excited. Because in my mind, I've watched a lot of YouTube videos where people are like, hey, look at me. I'm a cool bartender and I can make drinks. And I'm like, you know, that's cool. But being flashy isn't something that you necessarily need at home. Uh, so I figured give you something to, you know, kind of delve into while you're watching the drink be made and maybe go, go back and go, oh, wait, maybe I should listen to that again. Yeah. And I mean, it's so interesting. George Washington really got me thinking on how alcohol just kind of played such a major role in America. Uh, and even to the fact that if you were voting, it, if you were a white property owning man, right. uh, they would basically filter you into a tavern, get you loaded and sauced and then go, by the way, George Washington bought all of this for you. You're welcome. So... 
when you go to the voting booth, just remember, George Washington bought all of your booze. It's kind of like as a comic when you do a comedy competition and you pay for all your friends' tickets and their drinks. And then at the end, you're like, now vote for your favorite comic. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Whoever you thought Whichever was funniest, yep. you vote for them. Yeah. Did you study history? Are you Were you a, a history student? I, I was a history student at uh, Santa Monica Junior College. hey uh, Yeah. Um, I, I never uh, received my AA in it. Or anything like that. But Do they I have a mascot? What's the mascot? Uh, a Corsair, actually, oh, which uh, I learned, uh, Pirates of the Mediterranean. See, because you listen to Hilf. I do. Gosh darn it, I love I mean, that. It is amazing to make these connections. It is. And go, oh shit. So that- your mascot was a pirate of the Mediterranean? They're yes. so specific. I know. That's so great. Do you still have, like, I know you, they didn't <laughs> give you the degree, but did you get a t-shirt, something? I I have a notebook at home. It's Santa Monica <laughs> College, uh, yeah. It's one of those uh, three-ring binder notebooks with Santa Monica College proudly emblazoned on it. Nice. It's probably shoved away somewhere, somewhere deep and dark in the closet, but <laughs> it's somewhere it's got my notes on like how the Berbers moved through North Africa or something ah, like that. Yes, yes, yes. But that was what that was that your focus of study, or did you just sort of discover it as you were taking other courses there? It was my focus of study. I've always had a love for history, um, and I think it just kind of uh, my mom's family is Greek; they're from Sparta. So from that, I was just always really into Greek mythology. Uh, and along with that, I was like, well, if I got to learn these stories about like the gods, I should probably learn about the people that were telling them. Mm. Uh, and so then I started falling in love with, you know, uh, Eurymedon and, and just different generals throughout the Athenian history for the most part. Um, because the more I read about the Spartans, the more I was like, oh, you guys were kind of fascists. Yeah. You guys were not that great. Yeah. I mean, I find that great civilizations when closely examined go much the same way as great individuals mm. <laughs> where you go. Oh, my God, Einstein, right? Oh, brilliant, science. so brave, like escaped Germany, Jewish, mm-hmm. just a real shitty husband. Yeah. You know, like, when, then, uh, then you find out he was a philanderer. Come on, and you're what like, do you want? Oh, you know, and we are right now, at this time in history, we are not very good at uh, looking at people as composites of many things. We we tend to look at that particle of, of pollution polluting the whole bucket and mm-hmm. we toss it all out yeah and um i think that there will probably be a correction to this overcorrection as there always is but here we are here, i mean right this is exactly where we are and and i really like where we are right now <laughs> rashid green i'm having a blast with you and i would love for you to tell me because because like this chit chat is great but i won't get drinking Let's so get it. tell me you're making two cocktails for us today, is that make, correct? We're going to make two cocktails. <sighs> what is the first drink that you were going to make for us? So the first thing we're going to do is actually a sherry flip. Uh, in the video on TikTok, we did a whiskey flip. And flips are something that originate with sherry. Uh, but in America, we, we, we like things a little bit more uh, a little more rough than uh, a fortified wine. Yes. So we, we started using whiskey or cognac yeah. uh, to make our flips. But I'm going to make something a little closer to a classic flip. We're not going to go full classic. Uh, flips were actually a progenitor to eggnog. Uh-huh. So what you would do is actually crack a whole egg, give it a little shake, and then back in the colonial age, they would actually heat up like a big bulbous rod. They would actually insert that rod into the drink and heat it up. Uh, oh, my God. And I always found that kind of odd. I, <laughs> I, I'm heated up in a similar manner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never had the courage to actually try it because yeah. it just sounds like Dangerous. an affront to my, my taste buds. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, I don't know how I feel about cooking an egg with like this bulbous um, thing. I, and I'm like, I don't ugh. know how long you cook it for because you still need it to be Do liquefied. Do you need safety goggles? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're actually going to 
take the egg out and we're going to use chickpea water, which is a great vegan substitute when you need something with a little bit of froth. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant. So you are going to make me an almost classic. Almost classic flip. Sherry flip. I can't wait. And this, I should also tell my listeners, it is just after 10 o'clock in the morning. And mm. what Rashid and I have done is left our better halves in charge of uh, <laughs> things like children and, and, work and, and, and work. And we're just going to get a nice day buzz going. So what we're going to do, listeners, here's my plan. I'm going to have Rashid's going to make me a drink. I can't wait. We're going to listen to him. He's going to tell us how he's making it. Then we're going to drink it while I discuss our drunken founding fathers. Yes. Some general alcohol history of our early colonial America. And then specifically, one of my favorite stories uh, is the Whiskey Rebellion, which does feature our, our complicated friend, George Washington. Oh, yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's go. All right. My friend Rashid has all of his ingredients yes. laid out in front of him, and he's going to show uh, us how to make an almost classic sherry flip. Yes. Take it away, Rashid. All right. So the first thing we're going to start out with is our simple syrup. Uh, when I was learning to make cocktails, my the first thing I learned was start with the thing you can most afford to throw out. <laughs> so that's why we go with this. Nice. Um, now, a classic flip will actually have an ounce of simple syrup. Um I generally reduce that down just because uh, our taste buds are a little less into like overly sweet things. Yeah. Um, and that's, I, I found that that works for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were to make your, your super classic flip, it would be an ounce. I see. Uh, the almost classic flip, we're going to do three quarters of an ounce. Um, and that's just to help kind of uh, add a little or detract a little bit of the sweetness and, and allow for the sherry to kind of really take precedence. Uh, the next thing we're going to add in is chickpea water. Chickpea water I actually found by working at Soho uh, as a great substitute for egg whites. Uh, they used to make their whipped cream with it. And I was just kind of like, well, that's weird. How do you, what do you do? And the guy's like, oh, you beat it, you know, you whisk it and uh, add your sugar. Keep whisking and whisking and whisking and it'll eventually take like a creamy texture. That's crazy. And then you just, you can spoon it on top. And I was like, wow. That's awesome. Uh, I can see how even a, your non-vegan would be like, I don't want a raw egg in my drink. Yeah. It it sounds a little weird and and just it's one of the it's one of those things where cocktails are always about time and place, mm -hmm. uh, and you know what you have available to you at said time and place. Um, so they had eggs; they needed to use said eggs, mm -hmm. and you need to figure figure out a way to uh, temper your sherry because most sure. of the time back then it's kind of like drinking gasoline. Uh, uh, sherry is just like a fortified wine. Uh, it generally comes from Andalusia in Spain, mm. um, but one of the great things about uh, sherry is that the British also love it. Uh, when there was a captain that attacked a Spanish vessel that happened to be carrying a thousand barrels of sherry, and he captured them for the queen, brought them back to England, and they were like, this is great. Yeah. So then a bunch of Englishmen moved down to Andalusia, set up shop, and started producing sherry. Uh, and that's where we get our dry sack. Hey! Dry sack is actually a combination of sherries. Um, what and a bold name. Yeah. Dry you sack. You know you gotta have a good product if you're gonna call it dry sack and put dry sack right there on the label. Good and, for you. And the fun thing about it comes in a burlap sack. So very dry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which honestly, it's not it's not made with dry wine. Huh. So I don't really understand why they decided to call it dry sack. I just uh I just always love the concept of it. It's bold. Uh yeah, definitely bold. So we have all of our ingredients in our shaker. Okay. We're gonna add in some ice. 
He brought his own ice. Man. I mean, really, this cooler... It, frankly, even if you had also planned on stealing my kidney, I think this is a fair trade. I, you know, this is generally how most of my uh, ab abstractions go. <laughs> I, I get everybody nice and drunk, and uh -huh. then I'm like, uh, well, what do you mind uh, losing? Maybe yeah. an appendix? Actually, I guess appendix would probably be a terrible business to be in. Be a terrible business. I, I feel like if you... Uh, Music to my ears. It's always, I feel like it sounds better early in the morning. Mm. Yeah, before noon is yeah. when you know these people are committed. Oh, now you've got a spice. What are you holding there? We are holding nutmeg. <gasps> now, usually you would shave nutmeg over your top with a microplane, mm -hmm. but finding nutmeg, like a whole nutmeg. It's tough. It, it is. Yeah, you and Magellan, man. Tough yeah. to get. All right, here Did we go. You, I have a whole episode about the spice trade and how hard it is to get spices and how cinnamon and nutmeg dominated the world for Ooh. centuries. So this is even more appropriate than you know, Rashid. <gasps> Look at this. <sighs> All right. And I will pass this over for you. Rashid, this is a beautiful drink. It does have that foam that you talked about from the chickpea water. You've got nutmeg sprinkled on top, and it's in this beautiful, like, little uh, a stemmed highball. Yeah, it's a, a coupe glass. Uh, these are generally old-school cocktail glasses, or what you would pour uh, champagne into. Uh, they, they did stop using them for champagne because uh, the bubbles pop out too quickly. That's why you have kind of those uh, long tubular uh, uh, keep those bubbles yeah, in Yeah, they keep there. the bubbles in. God, that's fascinating. Well, Rashid, to you and your long life. Cheers. Oh, yes. Yeah. <gasps> Ooh, that little after. The little nutty aftertaste. Mm. That is that is the brandy that they would use in the, in the sherry to fortify it. Kind of doing <sighs> its thing. See, my body isn't even doing that thing we talked about where it's like, oh, I don't, this is bad for you. My body's on board. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is great. We're going to need 16 more of these. And I've seen how many, much you have there. So I, uh, that's, that's how you know you're seasoned. <laughs> oh, this is a, a fine Thursday morning. I am glad I could live up. Mm. That is a, that's awesome. I, Ooh. Okay, strongly, strongly recommend the nearly classic sherry flip. And yeah. now he showed you how to make it, so you should be able exactly. to Exactly. And if you want, you can definitely replace the sherry with something like cognac or whiskey. Uh, you might want to reduce the amount that you use. So we use two ounces of sherry for this. Uh, for a whiskey flip, you might want to do like an ounce and a half. Uh, I still do two because I'm generally drinking at home. Yes. Um, and I feel like when you're in the confines of your own home, go wild. Go wild. Because bed's right there. You're going to fall right into it. Yeah, exactly. And if you fall next to it, yeah, you wake up, you get into it later. Exactly. S split the difference. Um, well, this is such a perfect uh, beginning, a, a great introduction, a perfect companion for the history that we are about to get into. And I want to start, before I get into the Whiskey Rebellion, which is my favorite, um, I want to uh, just kind of do a general overview of drinking in America. Because yes. it is unique. Yes. <laughs> okay. The fact is... Americans, uniquely in the world, have always been real heavy drinkers. It isn't just compared to, like, America's past to America's present. I'm talking about all of America's past compared to all oh. of the drinking cultures around <laughs> the world is unique. And I, I found this quote from uh, a fella named Frederick Marriott. 1839, he was an English guy just traveling sh through America. So by 1839, an English guy can casually travel through America because <laughs> we had the Revolutionary Wars over and, and the War of 1812 is over and we've kind of settled our beef, right? You can be a tourist here without getting somebody knocking you out from behind. 
you red coat bastard. You know, it was nice and calm. And he made this observation about drinking in America. I'm sure the Americans can fix nothing without a drink. If you meet, you drink. If you make acquaintance, you drink. If you close a bargain, you drink. They quarrel in their drink and they make it up in their drink. They drink because it is hot. They drink because it is cold. If successful in elections, they drink and rejoice. If not, they drink and swear. They begin to drink early in the morning, (laughs) ding, ding, and they leave off late at night. They commence it early in life and they continue it until they soon drop into the grave. (laughs) I find no errors in this quote from the diarist of 1839. (laughs) Do you find anything untrue about that? I, I do not. I, I guess I always assumed that the rest of the world was just on board with us as far as drinking. Uh, and my thought was that wine is essentially started as a way to purify water. And, you know, eventually it gets to a point where you're adding so much water in that it becomes palatable. Right. And it gives you a little buzz. Yeah. So I just assumed everybody was just like, oh, this is what we do. Right. But- and that makes sense. Right. And and often I think a lot of people hear that, that this was, yes, they were drinking a lot of alcohol, way more alcohol than we did and in the morning and throughout the day. But it was because the water was unsafe. Yeah. And that is 100% true. Water was dangerous, man. You just can't drink the water. And it was rare to find clear drinking water, especially if you're in these remote areas or you're traveling. You know what I mean? You're on this boat for three months. What water you brought is nasty. So if you need liquid and it's fermented, that's the only way to know that it's not going to kill you. At least not as quickly (laughs) as it would kill you if it was dirty water. But just that alone just doesn't quite explain why Americans were drinking so much more alcohol than anyone else because the water, <laughs> you know what I mean? This water is the situation the with water. Is, oh, yeah. And, it, and yet we just seemed to like tick that up just a little bit. And it was always the case in 1630, mm-hmm. right? Over a hundred years before the Revolutionary War and any of the stuff that we've talked about, a Puritan ship coming across had 10,000 gallons of wine, three times as much beer as they had water. Did they need some safe liquid to drink? Yeah, but does that explain all that? No, No, it doesn't explain. 1763, in the then colonies of the United States, they had 159 commercial distilleries in New England alone. (laughs) And by 1820, whiskey was cheaper than tea. Oh, wow. So we have always, there's another quote I found, Americans drink from the crack of dawn Till the crack of dawn. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was true. At every single day in the military barracks in the colonial America, a bell would ring at 11 a.m. and at 4 p.m. It was called grog time. Yes. And you were required to take a drink. Yep. Just, and, which I think is an excellent. I, it is, thinking of how drinking is so ingrained in culture, uh, Ken Burns' Prohibition documentary, mm. where he does point out that the drinking throughout America was so ravishing Yeah, no, that's exactly right. In fact, I have an upcoming episode entirely devoted to prohibition. And it's exactly based in this stuff we're talking about right now, Rashid, which is this obviously can't last. You Mm -hmm. can't, you people can't drink this much, this long. And it was a different kind of alcohol. You made this beautiful, tasteful, small. I mean, this is a difference between park in your mouth under a whiskey keg and letting it pour down your throat until you go blind drunk, which is another way to do it and yeah. <laughs> arguably not the healthiest way yeah and and this is where some of the things that they instilled at this time period we're talking about ran off the rails and soldiers for example in 1782 by order of George Washington Ooh, got listen to this 4 ounces of whiskey in their daily rations that yeah that's 4 ounces a day per soldier i awesome uh, it's really interesting how we have all of these uh, 
basically, I guess, ways to, to not have to have water, but still have liquid. <laughs> yeah. People just don't like drinking water. I mean, yeah, they used to say, oh, it was poison. It would kill you, which was true. But I think today we got perfectly good purified <laughs> water that we still are like, oh, I got to put Gatorade in it and mm-hmm. the sugary, cool. You know, we just, I don't know why humans are so like, it's boring. We don't want it. So we figured out a way to <laughs> loosen up. Listen to this statistic, Rashid. By about 1820, okay, each person consumed approximately 1.7 bottles of 80-proof liquor per person per week. Oh, wow. And I drank a lot during COVID. I mean, like, the guardrails were off, right? And I don't think I drank 1.7 bottles of 80-proof liquor a week. I tried. Oh, I can't I say there wasn't a single week in there where I didn't accomplish that. But that seems... And that's even taking into account... Knowing that a lot of those people abstain and don't drink at all. Still taking the per capita count, they estimated it at being <laughs> 1.7 bottles of 80 proof liquor per person per week. Holy shit. I, I can't imagine. And also, I, I do wonder how big their bottles were. You know, were right. they measuring them out in milliliters like we do now? Were they, you know, gallons? Like sure. ooh, I, one of those like novelty store bottles. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, like comes yeah, a three like, story. Yeah, it's like a three gallon. Yeah. Ju- one bottle for like, me. Oh, yep, I'll take yeah. two of those, please, because uh, <laughs> next week I will be back for and a third, so that way I can round it all up. Averages out yeah. to one point seven. Yeah, that is amazing. It's amazing, and they said it was the first draft of an infant and the last thought of a dying man. And like I said, and as you pointed out, dude, we cannot drink this much and it leads to horrible results for individuals of course their bodies are ruined their lives are ended they become violent they become angry fights uh, break out just like in drug wars between competing distilleries and we do ultimately get to prohibition which is for another (laughs) podcast down the line but i did learn a lot as i was researching even just this beginning part of like drinking culture in america i used to think these like prohibition bitches needed to like Get a job. You know what I mean? Like, loosen up your corset, Betty, and, like, don't, like, pump the brake. Also, because prohibition was such a terrible idea legislatively. Yes. Proved to be such an awful idea. I just look back and be like, these sluts didn't know what was going on. (laughs) Then I start reading more about the problem, and I was like, oh, they, someone needed to. Yeah. Someone someone needed to throw a wrench into this fan, though. Like... (laughs) Somebody needed to tamp down a little bit. Yeah. When when your police chief is, like, drunk at, you know, 12 p.m., and he's kind of supposed to be responsible for making sure that crimes are solved... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also, like, I as a woman have no rights to vote or run my yeah. own money or and, and my husband just taking money and spending it on drink and then coming home and beating the shit out of me. Like, I have to be able to, you know, and you start to become a little bit more nuanced um, in oh, the yeah. history. Um, well, I uh, love my drink so much that I am almost done. And so what I would love to do, if you if you will acquiesce, Rashid, is to take one more short break, have you make me yet another drink, Yes. and, uh, and then we're going to get into one of my favorite history stories of all time. Oh, I cannot wait. Okay, let's go. Delicious, right? The drinks, the conversation, the history, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> and if you think listening to us is fun, imagine how much fun it is to see us do this thing live. <laughs> the Hilf Podcast is doing our first ever live recording on May 26th at the Glendale Room in Glendale, California. It's a tiny, intimate little space, and I'll be fucking history with special guest Rachel Scanlon. She is a touring stand-up comedian who makes me laugh so hard, I snort. <laughs> for links to tickets, pictures of Rashid, recipes for these amazing cocktails, and oh, so much more. Just follow me, follow me, follow me, follow. 
Okay, so I'm looking at my new best friend, Rashid, who has in front of him several beautiful bottles, and I'm seeing fresh fruit. Am I seeing mint? Yes, we have some mint. We have some some lime wheel or lemon wheels rather. Oh my goodness! So uh, tell me what this is. This is cocktail number two. What so is th this one? This is cocktail number two. Uh, it is a punch, Clarets punch. So uh, punches are essentially the progenitor to cocktails. Uh, they come from England, and uh, one of my favorite quotes, which I learned from a Dale DeGroff book, was Mozart would not get on stage if he was not served his punch. Uh, and I was like, yeah, bro. Look at I have you a similar it. writer. Myself. Yeah. I was like, I did not know writers went back that far. <laughs> I really like to imagine Mozart like throwing shit around his dressing room and being like, there is a punch. <laughs> I need my punch. Um, and so Claret's punch is just essentially a, uh, it's lemonade, but with wine instead of water. Um, and I think that it is a fun cocktail to make at home because a lot of the times I think people are a little uh, put off by cocktailing because they think it's going to be too difficult. And I'm like, hey, man, if you can make lemonade, you can do this. Yeah. You know? And you can charge a lot more at your stand outside. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. I would like to see you and Casey the next time I'm driving around the neighborhood with your kids out there because, yes. you know, she was sh shilling for you. And uh, but they're like, why is this lemonade $12 a glass? <laughs> You'll be like, oh, girl. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just don't tell anybody, you know, just, mm, down low, down low. Um, and so a Claret's Punch, uh, they come from uh, the 18th century. I don't have a, a specific year on them, uh, but they were basically just made as something that you could keep in your tavern for a good while. Um, now, I honestly probably wouldn't recommend keeping it as long as they did back then. Uh, they would generally keep it for as long as it lasted. Mm. Uh, having wine out at room temperature that long mm. uh, and open to the, uh, the wonderful yeasts uh, in the air, probably not a great idea. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to- Very vinegary. I would yes, yeah. I would imagine that by the end. But judging by- uh, all the stats we got on how often people would drink, I, I imagine it probably uh, was drank before it went bad. Now, uh, so we added four ounces of our red wine, our table wine, mm -hmm. uh, one ounce or half an ounce of our lemonade, and get that ice in here. Mm -hmm. Bring my, my those are water quality ice cubes. Jars. I can see these are quality cubes. All right, so we're gonna give this guy a good shake. Um, now, these actually end up becoming the base for like a wine cooler. Uh -huh. uh, later on in, I want to say, like the, uh, actually, I don't know when wine coolers developed. But I don't either. But you know, one of the things that is very popular where I'm from in Wisconsin, in Door County, which is if you're looking at the state of Wisconsin, it's the thumb. Okay. <laughs> the peninsula that goes out into the do, Great Lakes. Do all northern Midwestern states uh, do they all revolve around the hand? Isn't that isn't, funny? We I, do. A lot of us do. Uh, Wisconsinites, we hold up our hand to mm -hmm. show you the state and where we live on their state. Michigan is also kind yeah. of mitteny. Um, but then you've got that top part. <laughs> so, so it's kind of hard to find. But yeah, they're not all shaped like hands, but I always feel like Michigan and Wisconsin are in sort of a perpetual high five. Um, but that Door County, they have great vineyards and fruit trees, and they have excellent wine coolers. And I went there mm. on a trip with my family when I was like nine or 10. And my parents are animals, so they let us drink wine coolers. And that was the first time that I was like, oh... Drinking. drinking. Yeah. Drinking. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I find that a lot of times people don't uh, always have like a time and place, or not Certainly. time and place, but uh, a sense of like a, a good reason Certainly. for drinking. I find that when I uh, instill moderation in myself, um, it is often for the reverence of drinking. It is like if I want to drink every week for the rest of my life, 
I can't drink every day this is for the true. rest of my life. We added our ice cubes. And uh, I'm just throwing some raspberries on here mm -hmm. uh, as a little bit of a garnish. There are no raspberry flavor. Well, slight berry flavors in the drink. Not raspberries specifically. Oh, it looks so uh, beautiful. But we just want to make it look nice. Oh, friends, I am looking at this beautiful glass, tall, like highball glass with this ruby red wine cocktail, two perfect raspberries sitting on top of a flawless ice cube, <laughs> and a, a gorgeous little circle of yellow lemon. And I'm watching Rashid. He's tapping out the mint. <gasps> now we do that just to kind of break the oil barriers for the mint. And we're going to- oh, Look yeah. at how beautiful they are. I will hand this over for you. Wonderful. Uh, this is also kind of like a, uh, a little bit of a bootleg sangria in a way. Um, oh, sure. So with sangria, you are generally adding in a, a little bit more fruit flavor and actually allowing the, the wine to ferment with the apples or pears or whatever it is that you decide to add in. Uh, this is a little bit more of like a quick fire. Uh -huh. uh, but, I mean, uh, essentially we're drinking a sangria with a little bit of a... A little bit of simple syrup added to it. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And, and it looks like a salad, which is what I will tell myself I had. Cheers. Exactly, cheers. Mm. Oh my friend. And that little citrus uh, citrus twist there at the end yeah. and then the, and the uh, mint tickling your nose. I, Hot damn. I am a, a big fan of uh, large amounts of botanicals. Yeah, mm -hmm. even if it's just as a garnish because Tasting and smelling are so interlinked yeah. that honestly, when you get that little extra mint vibe, even though it's not present in the flavor of the cocktail, it really does kind of help to do, just kind of like, uh, I don't know, uh, prepare the palate. Oh my gosh. I feel like I am just sitting in the lap of luxury here. I, I, I hope that all of my future guests, if they listen to no other episode, they listen to this one and feel like, fuck. I gotta show up with cocktails. I gotta get some kind of cooler. I don't even have a shaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, here I am now with the Clarets. Clarets Punch. Clarets Punch from my friend Rashid Green. What a perfect uh, foundation for right. us to begin this Phenomenal story from the annals of history. Um, do you know what the Whiskey Rebellion is? Have you ever heard of this before? I have heard of it, uh -huh. but I do not feel like I know enough about it to say, oh, I know about that. Oh, I'm really glad. Honestly, yeah. I like it when my when my guests and I kind of back and forth about a subject, but I really do. I'm such a nerd. I love telling people stuff that they are hearing for the first time, and I think that you're really going to love this particular story. Um, so this is the Whiskey Rebellion, and to give you a little background, you know 1776, we began the Revolutionary War. We signed the Treaty of Paris in 1783, effectively ending it. But between 1783 and the uh, ratification of the Constitution in 89, <laughs> we've kind of just got this like adolescent country that's like, like we're going to figure it's called the Confederacy. And we just mm -hmm. really weren't sure exactly what was going on. And um, and then we ratify the Constitution, and it's really kind of like if you if you get legal separation from your parents, you know, you turn uh -huh. eighteen, you're like, yeah, fuck <laughs> those losers, and then you're like, oh my god, I gotta get a job. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we had like effectively won this question of like taxes, like where do we send our taxes? And now we're just a country on our own that is just starting out with an enormous burden of war debt. Yeah. So in addition to good luck expanding. Good luck doing anything you want to do without the funds of an old empire. But you got 
negative funds, man. Yeah. You old friends. You know what I mean? You, I don't know what you're going to do. And so, of course, the founding fathers are like, well, we need to start They're in taxing people, right? So Alexander Hamilton, you're in the room where it happened. You're Alexander a friend of my- Hamilton. Exactly. You know the guy. He, brainchild of a whiskey tax. He's like, guys, I figured it out. A whiskey tax, this is great because it's a vice. So people aren't going to be mad about it because they're like, well, if you don't want to pay the tax, don't do it. it." Um, And it's a luxury item. So I think this is going to be an excellent thing for us to tax. And he asked like his eight best friends, (laughs) you know what I mean? All the interested parties on the East Coast and government. And they were like, that sounds great, Alex. Let's do it. It's, of course, a terrible idea for a number of reasons. Taxes are always going to be sticky. And, of course, you say to an American population that's just fought this huge war over taxes, pay up. And they're like, huh. Hmm. They're like, yeah, we didn't say no tax. We just said we're not going to pay them. Oh, no. So, in particular, the folks who had a beef with this whiskey tax were the people that were living in western Pennsylvania. Okay. Which is kind of, at the time, the wet, the far west. The far, yeah. It's the wild west. You know what I mean? It's as west as you can go. It's wild out there. And there's a lot of reasons that they have a beef with this whiskey tax. And Alexander Hamilton, the rest of them, couldn't have like comprehended how complicated this was going to get. For one thing, as you and I kind of talked about this at the beginning, whiskey was currency yeah. because it was preserved. It's sort of like if you find a suitcase full of cocaine. It doesn't matter if you do cocaine or you know any drug dealers. One of the things you know is this is worth a lot of money, right? So whiskey was something that when they couldn't get the currency out there, they would use to trade and barter. And it was like an important lubricant for like the economy of these outposts. Um, Also, at the end of the season, they would take their excess grain and wheat and barley and use it to make this stuff. So it was also a huge savior for them individually to be able to produce it. There was also, it was so unfair the way it would affect them versus how it would affect the big distillers on the East Coast. Because you had a choice with this tax if you were going to do a flat tax or buy the gallon. Oh. So these guys are out there not making much. And there was no way that that tax wasn't going to hurt them where the huge distilleries on the East Coast could just roll with it. And it wasn't going to, and they could sell to more people and they could sell at a higher amount. So it just didn't make, it was completely unfair. Go Sorry ahead. No, please I'm, ask I'm so, me questions at I'm any so point. I'm so interested in why he would think a whiskey tax is a good idea, seeing as the revolution kind of starts when they're like, hey, there's a sugar tax. Y'all are out there making all this rum, and you ain't paying us. Right. We need money for that. It really is it, an oversight. It seems like Hamilton would have been like, hey, man, uh, we did. they did that sugar tax thing, and it didn't go so well because we tried to, we kicked them out. Girl, I could and, not agree with you more. I, it is such an <laughs> oversight. It was like, did you see what y'all just did? Yeah. He didn't even get you drunk. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't yeah. think people are going to lose their tops over something that is way more fun to drink than tea? Yeah, it was a, it was a huge oversight. In addition to that, they, in the course of this law, were like, also, you need to register your sill. Oh. Which, in the capital, which is like a 300-mile journey. So even if you were cool with these taxes, even if you were like, yes, we're America now, and this is our duty, you have, you're going to travel 300 miles to register your, fuck you guys. So they I, were over it. And another reason they were like, fuck your taxes, is because the federal government, which, hello, we're still tits deep in this fight, states' rights, federal government. Mm-hmm. But this was like, why should I be paying the federal government all this money when they are not coming out here helping us? Yeah. You know, they were getting into conflicts with Native people. They were, the federal government was leasing land on the on Mississippi and other federal lands to Spain and to France over them, the mm. American settlers. So they were like, fuck the government. Yeah. Like, these taxes aren't coming back to us. Three years go by, Rashid. 
And the central government can't help but notice they aren't getting any taxes from out there in Western <laughs> Pennsylvania. It appears that after all of this contemplation, the people were just like, no. I, I, I feel like... Uh, right? Yeah. Right. So they go, well, no, yes. So they send out some tax collectors. Oh. You have to start paying. These 20 guys who hear that this tax collector is coming, <laughs> they dress up like women, uh-huh. ambush him on the side of the road. Oh, wow. Steal his horse, beat the snot out of him, and then tar and feather him. Ooh. Yeah, right? Uh. And like tarring and feathering, man. Like when I first read about tarring and feathering, I was like, it's kind of silly. Like it looks silly in yeah. a picture. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like in a movie, you see like a guy that's like running through. She's like, oh. Yeah. But yeah. Like a sad little big the... bird or something. Oh. But no, dude, they pour hot boiling tar mm. on your skin. They pour the feathers on you. Because it itches, and when you start itching, you basically push these sharp-ass feathers into your bubbling skin that now has to be... I mean, tarring and feathering is bad. So they get wind of this, and the government is like, oh, send another guy. Let's try again. (laughs) Maybe Maybe they didn't know... That we wanted him to get. Maybe they weren't clear. So they send this other guy. They say, they kidnap him. They, be, they don't tire and feather him. They tie him to a tree for five hours. He doesn't have a great time. <laughs> and at this point, we are clearly at an impasse. Civil service man. Uh-huh, right, <laughs> poor guy. We're at an impasse. We're like, we got to go get those taxes. In addition to the fact that we can't let this go. You can't be this brand spanking new government that instills one rule and they don't follow it. And you go, okay, well, what do you guys think is fair? Right? Yeah. So everyone's like, ah, what do we do? What do we do? So they, we issue subpoenas. You guys got to register your sills and you got to start paying these taxes. And they send out a guy named Lennox, David Lennox. He's a U.S. Marshal. Oh. No tax collector. And he's out there now and he's issuing some writs and they're being, they're responding okay. And then they're like, you know what you need is you need a guide. You need a friendly local guide. Mm-hmm. Someone who knows the people and knows the train to be along with you so you're not just this stranger. And so he gets this guy, General Neville, who he thinks will be this great friendly local guide. Now. <laughs> In the course of history, when it comes to a friendly local guide, there's a lot of ways that this can go. One, uh, you get a friendly local guide to ease your way, and they are a friendly local guide eases your way. Hot uh-huh. damn, you nailed it. Sometimes they're not a friendly local guide. They hate your guts. It's a trick. They lure you in. They take advantage of you. Something tells me it's the latter. They don't ease your way. But there is yet a third scenario, Rashid, which is sometimes they are a friendly local guide to you, but the other locals Ooh. fucking hate this guy. Mm. Yes, and they yes, yes. are not exactly the representative that you, stranger, wanted what? to be moving ahead of you. And in this instance, General Neville proves to be the, the third. third. Oh. <laughs> he is very, he's like, I'll, I'll take you around. I'm a, I'm a Revolutionary War veteran. Mm. I've lived here my whole life. And which seems rational. They fucking hate this guy. The rest of the people in town hate this fucking guy. Because above all, mostly what this thing ends up being, the Whiskey Rebellion, is a class war. Oh. Right? This guy, General Neville, he's got a huge estate. He's a very successful He can afford this tax. And he is seen as something of a traitor, someone who doesn't share the stakes and the interests of the local population and is ushering in this monster that's about to devour them. Big Neville, coming for the little man. Big Neville. Nasty he's just out there, Neville. Nasty Neville. So Neville and, Net- and Lennox, as they're going around, start to get a, a whiff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the fact that these guys don't. Lennox is like, I gotta go. And Neville goes home. 25, 40, 50 guys come to Neville's house in the middle of the night. Oh boy. And say, you know, we were thinking how much we'd like to meet this U.S. Marshal you had with you today. 
would you be a darling and bring him out? <laughs> right? That, oui. And Neville's like, he's gone, which he was. He's gone. And they were like, that's fine. Why don't you come out? <laughs> and uh, Neville's like, I don't like anything about this. And so he doesn't come out. And he gets his enslaved people to get weapons and kind of be the meat shields and stand mm. between him and this angry mob. And he gets his gun. And he, they get into kind of a yelling, shooting, fighting match. Neville ultimately does fire into the crowd and kills a guy, a guy named Oliver Miller. Ooh. And the mob picks up his body and leaves, which Neville knows is not, that's okay. probably yeah. not the punctuation on this story. So he calls up his brother-in-law, who works for the federal government and has a bunch of federal soldiers, like 10 of them nearby, and he's like, I super duper need you to come to the house right away, <laughs> right? Kirkpatrick comes down to Neville's house with these 10 soldiers and tells Neville, you should go, because you're a hot point. <laughs> yeah. So he goes, he hides literally in a ditch behind the house while Kirkpatrick, his enslaved peoples, and the soldiers are guarding his house. And yeah, hooray, the, are, they come back. 600 strong now, led by another Revolutionary War veteran. I'm just floored by the idea of, like, as a, as a black guy, mm. uh, half black guy, you know, as it goes, uh, I'm floored by the idea of somebody enslaving me and then handing me a weapon and being like, defend me. Right. I would have been like, Oh, so I don't use this on you? Right. And also, I would have probably just been like, uh, well, you know what? Now that I think about it, if they drop their, their weapons and run, eh, they're probably dead anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And it really, you, you read my mind because it is, you can imagine for the individual person who's been handed a weapon and told to defend the house, they're just looking at like all of their worst case scenarios. Yeah. We're like, okay, I could kill you mm -hmm. <laughs> and run away. But where am I going? Where, yeah. I could kill them, and you could be really happy about that. But and then, then here I am, I, where yeah. I was yesterday. Or I could, yeah, there's not a lot of good options. But ultimately, self-defense is, is always going to be a big motivation. And let's be fair, for the mob that is coming to destroy Neville and his property, they included his slaves as the property that they would delight in destroying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It would be... Burn down his house, kill his livestock, kills. Kill I mean, it's it would be a financial harm to the guy, and therefore something worth doing. So Kirkpatrick is now in the house guarding it. This six hundred person mob comes, led by the revolutionary guy McFarlane. McFarlane is like, "Come on, man, you got to come out of here." They get into this back and forth. Ultimately, Kirkpatrick shoots and kills McFarlane. And, every, and then, shortly after that, Kirkpatrick's like, I don't even fucking live here. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this Neville guy is my brother-in-law. Get the fuck, why are we doing this? Yeah. And they're like, all right. So they leave. <laughs> I wouldn't say they surrender. Mm. They put up a good fight. And once it looks like, well, what the fuck are we doing? They leave. And yes, the mob does burn down his house. And the bodies, however, appear to be just a couple of the soldiers, a couple of the um, mob. If the enslaved peoples were killed, they may or may not have been counted in the end of the day. But it's a bloodbath, yeah. and it's bad. And the smoldering embers of Neville's house. And now the federal government is like, fuck. We really got a problem on our hands. We really got a problem on our hands. And now we have 
revolutionary war veterans on opposite sides of this issue. It's not even like you can just appeal to someone's patriotism and necessarily, right, run this away. And right when they're trying to figure out, like, how bad is this going to get? I don't know how we should respond. I mean, do we, like, threaten them militarily? Do we just continue to excite? What do we do? I told you that uh, our buddy McFarlane gets shot and killed. He was kind of the lead of these rebels, these guards. Another guy steps up. His name is David Bradford. He's also kind of a rich landowner, but he's a fanatic. Mm -hmm. And he gets this mob now is like, yeah, we got him on the run. We got him scared. We burned down his house. Fucking military's running. And they, 7,000 of them, Rashid, 7,000 walk to Pittsburgh to start a fight. They oh, just wow. want to fucking make they... shit go, right? As mobs do. And they park themselves outside. Listen to this shit. They steal the mail. Like, you think we invented <laughs> hacking as like a way? They steal all the mail. Going in and out of Pittsburgh, read it all, and f- try to find out who's on our side, who's not on our side, who in this town is sort of anti uh, right? And they find these three guys in particular. They're like, you, Pittsburgh, we read the mail. And these guys are like talking shit yeah. about an angry mob. Imagine that. <laughs> and we are going to... And the city of Pittsburgh... Now, I've never been to Pittsburgh. Have you been to Pittsburgh? I, I have not been to Pittsburgh. I think we should go to Pittsburgh, Rashid, because here's what... I've, I've, it, this town has it right. I don't know how to react. 7,000 angry people come to your town, read your mail, and like bring... And Pittsburgh was like, I see. So they go out to the edge of town, and they're like, hey, guys, ugh, isn't this just the worst? Like, <laughs> this is the worst. We know you're mad, and we know you read the mail, and those the guys that you want, we hate them. They're banished. We, they're gone. Those oh. guys suck. So don't even worry about it. They're not here. They're gone. Oh, but that... now you guys are all here. I mean... Hmm, you're all here just sitting outside of town. I have an idea. Why don't we bring you guys seven barrels of whiskey? Ooh. Would you like that? And the mob was like, well, well yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't necessarily think there's a lot of wisdom in giving an angry mob seven barrels of whiskey, but yeah, you know, thirsty they men. Did. They just walked all that way. Yeah. <laughs> and remember I said this was a class issue, right? Mm-hmm. Part of what's bubbling here has nothing to do with the whiskey tax anymore. These folks are starting to talk like the French revolutionaries, which if you forgot, that's guillotine the rich girl. That That is is just find rich people, bring them out to the center of town and cut their heads off. And they're starting to get like, I think that's the answer. We keep saying it's about monarchy. We keep saying it's about the Catholic church. I think it's just rich people. It's all the oligarchs. Let's drag the rich people out and kill them, which is something that (laughs) the founding fathers like, oh no, 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 we can't have that. But we also can't demean the French because they're our best friends. We sell them a lot of money. So they were, the Pittsburgh is like, you've had your whiskey. This is great. I know what to do. Why don't you guys come into town? We'll have a parade for you. We're going to go right down the middle of town. You guys come in here. Whiskey, come into town. We're going to rain. And then when you get to the end of town, you just go on home. <laughs> and the angry mob full of whiskey marched through Pittsburgh. We're the fucking mob. And just went on home. I would not have expected that to work. I mean, but doesn't, as a parent, don't you feel like that is when th- your kid's nuts, you're like, you know what you need? I'm going to give you an ice cream cone. Yep. And I'm going to have you just run through this field until you fall asleep. Yeah. No, that is, that isn't a fantastic <laughs> way to quell a, a four-year-old or, yeah. you know, uh, middle-aged or younger men in the, in, in the you know, 1700s. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. They didn't yeah. have a lot to do. No. Yeah. So there, so like we kind of quell thing, but now, you know, General Washington cracks his knuckles. And he's like, oh, fuck. All right. You know, and General Washington has a lot of credit. Not only is he the first president of the United States, of course, he's this respected war veteran. And what he has 
is respect from everyone, which no one else enjoys. It's fuck you, Jefferson. Fuck you, Adams. Fuck you, this. Fuck the Federalist. Everyone's fucking fighting. And that's one of the reasons why we needed George Washington, because we all liked him, Mm -hmm. and he seemed to be this calming influence, you know? And he knew his unique place at the time. It was why he was so reluctant to come back and do the second term. When they, the first term, frankly, he was like, I don't want to, I'm so old, I don't want to do this. And they were like, but we need you. (laughs) Like, it'll all fall apart if we don't have you, you know? And he does love and respect few things more than veterans and the military. I mean, he's not perfect, but he has that. So he's like, all right, um, let's go. Let's go down there and crack some skulls. Right? So he assembles 12,000 troops. He gets some of the oldest, bestest generals from the good old days. He puts his general's uniform on. Oh, wow. The one with the buttons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and he's so tall. And he rides down there himself with the troops. Oh, man. And he gets into the center of town where this rebellion and he, has been surging. He's pretty old at this point, right? Yeah. He's like in his 50s? Um, I think at this point he might even be in mm. his huh? late 50s. He, yeah. he certainly was older than his father, and that weighed heavily on him. His father died right. in his early 50s, and he always assumed he would too. Mm-hmm. So even when the first presidential term came around, he was like, okay, but I'll probably die in the next <laughs> couple of years here. I mean, he was sort of surprised he was alive as long as he was. Um, so, so General Washington comes into town, and uh, there ain't no rebellion. They aren't no. there. They're gone. They heard he was coming. They, they counted heads. They did a little eye gun, <laughs> and he met no resistance. He met no rebellion. They sussed out a few guys. They put him on trial. They could have been executed, but General Washington, of course, in his exceeding fairness, pardoned them and was like, just cool it now. Now, if you wanted, you could close the history book <laughs> right there and say, so the moral of the story is powerful leaders need to apply their strength if the right place at the right time simultaneously preserves democracy and quells uprisings. But if you opened up the history book and kept reading, they never started paying those taxes. (laughs) And when Jefferson is ultimately elected president, he abolishes those taxes anyway, and it never actually comes to a head. So the real moral of the story is pay your taxes. Right? Unless you shouldn't, and then just don't. Yeah, and hope that they go away. I, I just feel so bad for that first tax collector that went in there that was like, hey, guys, uh, you know, federal government sent me. And they're like, fuck you. Here's some hot tar and some feathers. And then later on, it's like, oh, hey, guys, this was a bad idea. We should just get rid of this law. Yeah. And, I and mean, they couldn't even get tax collectors to go. go. I mean, after a while, they because they're still an individual, right? Yeah. And you'd be like, all right, Rashid, we got you a nice horse. <laughs> and here's a bag. We kept, packed your lunch. And you're going to go, and you'll be like, I, no. No, thank you. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm cool. Not. I'm here. I can go down the street and get yeah. some taxes. I hear there's a sales tax thing, right? Yeah. yeah. Why don't you just go ask them again? Yeah. No, and that was the thing. The sales tax, ultimately, this is, you know, for another day, but um, we weren't sure. Part of the reason why we couldn't repeal prohibition was for so long and why some of these powers ultimately started to embrace these taxes once they were enforced and they could, you know, <laughs> pay them. They fought them and fought them and fought them until they realized how much the taxes on alcohol were funding the government, realizing that it made them essential that they would be able to create great leverage, they would be able to bribe politicians, they are now critical infrastructure to the nation, we are now funding war efforts, you will never, ever get in the way of alcohol because we pay so much money. 
when we finally passed an income tax, mm -hmm. it was the primary argument for now we can pass prohibition. Oh, interesting. Yes. And the, and the distillers and the brewers were like, N -n -n um, no, and they're so suddenly finding themselves, and this is one of the wonders of history, less than 150 years later, it is the distillers and the brewers who are fighting hard to keep a whiskey tax just to preserve their they're... industry at all. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I never would have thought about it. What initially popped into my head, because I'm looking at Star Wars Legos up there, was George Lucas in episode one, where he's just like, eh, they're tax collectors, but they have light, light swords. So that way you can't, <laughs> yeah. you can't just tar and feather them. Right. And also, if you try, they can just push you out of the way with, with their mind. Indeed. I would have thought uh, Jedis would have been excellent, <laughs> excellent tax collectors oh at this God. time. The other thing that I was thinking when you initially said that uh, the stills had to go register at the Capitol, I was like, well, why didn't they just email? And then I was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. my God. No, no, no. I can't I'm, ask her that. Can I'm, you mention? Yeah. I can't I'm, believe I asked Dawn why I, they didn't email. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm kind of I'm regretting actually yeah. admitting that now that I I'm think thinking about it. I think it's very noble of you. I, uh, I it, literally, I was just like, oh, God, that's such a millennial thought. Watch oh, that down. But you Watch know what? But that, I think, is one of those things. Even I do it sometimes. It becomes difficult not to see all eras of history from your own perspective. And sometimes technology is the quick, we'll catch it, and be like, well, why didn't they just call somebody? And you're like, okay, mm. well, mm. we can just call somebody. Um, but but it, we are less able to see different kinds of changes in society and why our assumptions are different, like... When we talk about prohibition, for example, and you're like, well, you know, women couldn't have their own bank accounts until 1974. Oh, that hurts my soul. So when you think about why didn't women f do all the things men did? Why didn't they? Or the idea of like, well, women just aren't interested in science. Or women, you know, it's not we're not saying they're dumb. It's just that women don't pursue these things. And you're like, you fuck. <sighs> they had to ask their dad did and their husbands for money legally. Until I was born. Well, that's just, ugh. I guess recency bias is, is pretty dominant in, in most of my thinking. Uh, but it is, I, I did not know that until 1974? I think it was 1974. Yeah. Oh. That women couldn't have a line of, now an unmarried woman maybe could in some banking institutions. Oh. But once you got married, Everything belonged it was to illegal. Husband. A bank could not issue a married woman her own line of credit without her husband's approval. 1970s. Well, yeah, and you know, and it's similar. I find you know, you're as a man of color. When people talk, I always people talk about time travel. Oh yes, I, which I love because I'm a historian and I love science and I love fantasy. So like, time travel is so fascinating to me. But it's very difficult for me to get more than two minutes into this mental exercise before I'm like, well, I just die in childbirth. Yep. Oh, I'd I just be pregnant all the time and then die in childbirth. Mm -hmm. I think about the fact that, like, even if I went back to Africa, they'd be like, whoa, light skin, bro. What the fuck are you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, oh, I just wanted to see the culture, you know? Hey, you know what? Cheers. Cheers. I feel like talks of history really aren't good talks about history until you've completely wandered off your timeline yes. and around the map <laughs> and back again. And what a fantastic journey it has been with you, Rashid Green. Thank you so much. I encourage everyone, please... Go to the Barless Tender, which I, I should warn you, as, as I have been um, spending a lot of time on the, with the Barless Tender and their TikTok and Instagram, um, it's just one little letter to make that Barless Tender. And yes. that is an entirely different yes. social channel. That is so true. <laughs> I mean, sometimes one can lead to the other. But at the moment, this is the Barless Tender um, with <laughs> I, Rashid Green and his lovely wife, Casey, who I cannot wait to meet in person. I cannot wait for you guys to meet. I feel like we're going to have such a great friendship. I I agree. I agree. So two new friendships. Two new friendships. Cheers. 
and cheers to you for being here and listening all the way to the end. Wasn't that fantastic? Now, if we left you wanting more, I have good news. There is more. Virtually all of my episodes have at least 30 minutes of additional chit-chat and bullshit that I painfully edit out in order to keep these comfortably consumable at about 60 minutes. There are gems in there, though, friends. I'm not going to lie. Tangents on time travel, questions about legends, personal stories, and now here I am at my 13th episode finding I have a very cool cutting room floor that is demanding to be shared. (laughs) And so it shall be. So look for the Hilf Orgy, an episode dedicated to deleted moments from each episode coming out in the near future but not quite yet. In the next episode, we will continue this conversation about the history of drinking with prohibition, the 13-year span of time in America when alcohol was constitutionally banned and sexy deviant youth culture was born. Mm, Capital F on this one, friends. My guest is Bo Hufford, a visual artist and the co-host of the wildly successful podcast, Campfire Shit Show. I know, so vulgar, so fun. (laughs) I'll see you there. Hey friends, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. If you like the Hilf podcast as much as I do, you'd probably like my show as well. I run a show called Euripides Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Yes, I know, those are ridiculous words to spell. I'll help you out later. Now for each episode, I invite a guest from the global theater community to discuss crazy stories from theater history, and my guest has no idea what we'll be discussing before we record. But we've covered a huge range of topics so far, from just how obsessed the ancient Greeks were with that certain part of the male anatomy, why vampire musicals have never worked on Broadway, and the lengths to which people have gone to ban some of the most popular plays ever written. Plus, many of my guests have come back to record shorter episodes, which I call theater horror stories. These are moments when, in live theater, things really start to go off the rails, but those involved put the old adage to the test, the show must go on. Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast, both of those words start with the letters E-U. You should be able to find it after that. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts.